John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where, you are, where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, in the week that uh, Billy Graham died, it's fitting perhaps that we're going to spend our time together this evening thinking about the subject of bearing witness to Jesus. Billy Graham, if you don't know who he was, one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century, is said to have preached the gospel to 2.2 billion people in his lifetime. I don't know how they work that out. Well, I imagine it's safe to say that none of us here in this room this evening will bear witness to the Lord Jesus in that way. 
But we've all got our part to play, as we'll see from these words of the Lord Jesus as we look at them together. And as we do that, it's important that we keep the context in mind. Many of you will have been coming along to this series in these chapters of John's Gospel, and you'll know that just at this point, this is the night of Maundy Thursday. It's the Last Supper, the Passover meal. And Jesus knows that within the space of just a few hours, he's going to be betrayed and arrested and deserted by his friends and tried and convicted and scourged and beaten and mocked and crucified. He knows he's going back to the Father. He knows he's going to die for the sins of the world so that he can offer eternal life to his friends. And that's why he's been telling his disciples that he's going to be going away. In fact, the whole of this section of John's gospel, John 14, 15, 16, 17, is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. Well, there are many comforts that we can draw from this farewell discourse of Jesus. If we belong to him, if we've been chosen and appointed by him, called his friends, I think to give comfort is the main reason that Jesus spoke these words and that they were recorded for us. Comfort and joy. Let not your hearts be troubled. We had it twice in chapter 14. Perhaps you remember. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave you. Not as the world gives. And then in chapter 15, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And as Jesus prepares to leave his disciples, his friends, he knows their hearts. He knows how they feel about that. Have a look with me at this evening's verses. We'll jump in at first chapter 16 and, and verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. These words of Jesus were spoken to give comfort and joy to Jesus' friends that night, just at that point when their hearts were troubled, sorrowful, just at that point when they thought they might be losing sight of Jesus. And wonderfully, these words were written down for us tonight, for our friends of Jesus, to give us comfort and joy, just at that point where we might be feeling sorrowful, where we might be worried that we're losing sight of Jesus. That's why we need these words. The Holy Spirit who filled the Lord Jesus, who filled the apostles, inspired them to write these things down for us. He's the spirit of truth. We've seen that. He takes what's from Jesus and he declares it to the apostles who declare it to us. So these are precious words for us if we believe in Jesus. Some of you may have them printed in red letters in your Bible. The words of Jesus in red. It's a bit strange, really, because the Holy Spirit inspires all the words of the Bible, so they're all words of Jesus. It's probably a good reason for keeping them in black. J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool, a great evangelical leader of the 19th century, is fond of saying that these particular words are so wonderful and beautiful they should be printed in gold letters. Well, whether they're gold or black or red, it doesn't really matter. If we're Christians, we have a feast from the Lord Jesus this evening. Words we need 
words to strengthen us and give us comfort and joy. Let's pray that God would help us as we get into studying these words together. Our loving Heavenly Father, your Spirit inspired your apostles to write your Son's Word so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Please would you minister that hope and comfort and joy to us this evening as we draw close to Jesus Christ in faith and hear his word. Amen. Well, you'll find a hope on the back page of the service sheet, a brief outline that'll tell you where we're going this evening. We've seen in this series from John's Gospel that as Jesus gets ready to leave his disciples and as he prepares for the cross and then the resurrection to follow, he gives them certain commissions or tasks And he also promises them the resources that they need to carry out those commissions. A job to do, and then the tools to do the job. And the greatest task is the mandate to love. Jesus, his disciples have to love him, and they also have to love one another. It's a command to love, a mandate to love mandatum in Latin. That's why it's Maundy Thursday, command Thursday. Now, our culture tells you, you can't command love. That's coercive. It's abusive even. But Jesus tells us you can. And as so often when our culture and Jesus point in different directions, you've got every reason to go with Jesus and not with the culture. We're commanded to love. And the greatest resource For this great task, this mandate to love Jesus and love one another is the love that Jesus himself has shown to his friends. We love because he loved us. He laid down his life for his friends so we can love and serve others. But Jesus' love, it's not just a good example for us to follow. Watch what I do and, and see if you can copy it. Jesus has also given us the gift of his spirit. And as we've seen in this series, that's even better than having Jesus with us in the flesh. That's hard perhaps for us to get our heads around. We kind of think it would be great to have Jesus with us. But as Rog said three weeks ago in his sermon, it's an upgrade because by the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son themselves come and they make their dwelling, their home in the heart of every single believer. So that Jesus isn't now just with his friends, he's in his friends, in our hearts, by his Spirit. And that means there's a new and transforming power in the lives of Christians. It means that if we abide or or remain in Jesus like a branch in a vine, or as we might say, like an electrical appliance that's plugged into the mains and the power is switched on, then we can obey him and love him and bear fruit that lasts because God's at work and his words in the Bible nourishes us and his spirit who fills us gives us joy and peace and these things flow from God into our lives and then flow out as God works from our lives. So God's power is at work in us. We can glorify God as people who remain in Jesus. We show and tell the world what God is like, how wonderful the Lord Jesus is, how great his salvation is. My kids are a bit old for this now. They're 
10 and 7. But a few years ago, they used to do something at school called show and tell. I never did that at school, but maybe some of you did. You know what it's like. You've got to bring something in from home. Maybe something you've made or something you picked up on a day out or something embarrassing that belongs to mum or dad. And you show it to the class and you talk about it. And whatever you do, everyone claps. And the teacher says, very well done. Well, that brings us tangentially to tonight's passage. Because every believer in Jesus Christ has a commission, a task, to show and tell, to show the world and to tell the world what God is like in the person of his son, Jesus. In the language of our passage tonight, verse 15 of chapter, sorry, verse 27 of chapter 15, we need to bear witness to Jesus, 1527, you can see it there. You also will bear witness. Now, Jesus is talking here to the original 11 disciples. It's just 11, Judas has gone off into the night. And they're the ones who, in that verse, verse 27, have been with Jesus from the beginning. They're the ones who are going to bear witness. The Greek word is martyreo, which gives us the English word martyr. But at the time this was written, it didn't have the connotations it has or the meaning it has now of, of going to die of those original 11 disciples. Ten of them did lose their lives because of their witness to Jesus. Only John, who wrote these words down for us, lived on into old age and wrote down his gospel on the island of Patmos where he was exiled. But so many Christian witnesses were killed for their faith that the word came to take on the meaning it has for us today. The martyrs. This was a commission to the 11, but it's not irrelevant for us. The principle I want us to see is for Jesus' disciples for all time. The 11 apostles aren't here anymore. They've given us their word. It's our responsibility, our commission to show and tell Jesus Christ. The problem is for us that when we bear witness to Jesus, when we show and tell, unlike back at school where everyone claps and teacher pats you on the back, not everyone is going to clap when we show and tell Jesus. Tonight's passage is written, Jesus spoke these words, and then it's written to help believers who struggle with bearing witness. I'm going to take it that includes all of us here tonight, who are believers. If you're not a believer, I'll have things to say to you as well, so don't worry. It certainly includes me. It's a struggle. In this passage, Jesus gives his friends, gives us, if we belong to him, two things to expect as we bear witness to him. That's the structure of tonight's sermon. It's very simple. Two things to expect. First, the world will hate you. But secondly, the Spirit will help you. Jesus' words are full of realism, but they're also full of reassurance. So let's think first about this, the realism. When you bear witness to Jesus, the world will hate you. Now, in John's gospel, the world means humanity in opposition to God, those who've rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, when you bear witness to me, the world will hate you. Maybe that's a new idea to someone here this evening. Maybe you're a new Christian, 
you've not been a Christian for very long, you're full of joy and encouragement, and people are interested to hear about it, and things are going well, and you've never really reckoned with the idea that it might be difficult. You might be hated. Or perhaps you've been a Christian, you've called yourself a Christian for many years, but the idea of being hated by people because of it is not something you've experienced personally. If that's you, the Bible would urge you to think hard about whether you really do belong to Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, discovering the world's hatred is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 18 in chapter 15 there, it says, if the world hates you, if the world hates you, which in English sounds a little bit like the world might hate you, or it might not hate you. You might get lucky. But one of the things that you learn when you read the New Testament in the original language is there are lots of different if sentences in Greek. That's the language of John's gospel. And people who study these things have divided them up into different types. And this one, Jesus is speaking in what's called a first-class condition. We imagine Jesus would always talk first-class, but grammatically only sometimes. And when he speaks in first-class conditions, he's assuming that what he says is going to happen. It's not in doubt. We might translate it, when the world hates you. That's what Jesus means. If you're a Christian, the world will hate you. Why? Well, because you're united to Jesus, like a branch is united to a vine. He dwells in you by his spirit. And the world hated him. The world rejected him. The world crucified him. The world wants nothing to do with him. The world gathers together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, and says, let us break their cords and cast away their bonds from us, Psalm 2. And so Jesus says in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Of course the world hates Jesus' friends because we belong to Jesus and the world hates Jesus. You can't separate the two. Now, of course, you can, because I'm not Jesus, and Jesus isn't me, and we're not each other. We're all different. But we've been joined so closely to him, personally, mystically, by his spirit. The two can't be separated. You might hear someone on the radio who says, um, I hate Theresa May, but I love the Tories. I was trying to think of an example that doesn't involve politics. You could conceivably say, I love Ronald McDonald, but I hate his hamburgers. And at least logically, that makes sense. But you can't say that about Christ and Christians. The two can't be divided. Verse 19. Christians don't belong to the world. Now, there's another if in this verse, but this time Jesus is speaking in a second-class condition. What's that? Well, Jesus assumes the premise is false for the sake of the argument. So he's saying to his friends, look, I know you're not really of the world. Quite the opposite. I've chosen you out, out of the world. And so Christians belong to Jesus and not the world. Maybe we just need the reminder that you can't belong to both. Because it's so tempting, isn't it, to want to try to belong to both. No one likes to be hated, right? So we just sort of think, 
maybe the Jesus part of our graphic equalizer has turned up a bit too far. We'll just balance it up with a little bit of world. It's not like we'll turn Jesus right down. We'll keep him up there. We just don't want things to get out of kilter. So we compromise. Perhaps we don't stand out. We don't speak up. Perhaps we just tune down on that or turn down that battle with sin that we know we should be fighting. Well, to all would-be compromisers, and I'm one of them, a would-be compromiser from time to time, Jesus says, no, 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 you can't belong to me and the world. No one can serve two masters. It's darkness or light. It's this or that. If you love the world, the world will love you back. Of course it will. The world loves its own. If you love me, Jesus says, the world will hate you. Just think about this for a minute. This hatred is ironic, isn't it? The world hates Jesus. Jesus was the most loving man who ever lived. Read the stories of his life in the Gospels. He loved people. He cared for them. He was filled with love. Why does the world hate Jesus and hate his friends? It's counterintuitive, isn't it, when Jesus and his friends are are so full of love. If someone loves you, you're disposed to love them back. I don't know, we might think it's down to ignorance. You know, if people could just get to know Jesus, then they'd love him. Surely they'd change their view. Sometimes I talk up like that about friends or family. I don't know about you. You don't mind old Uncle Andrew. He's a bit cantankerous, but once you get to know him, he's got a heart of gold. Or don't mind old Jesus. He comes out with some strange things from time to time, all that stuff in 1 Timothy that we're doing in the morning service. But once you get to know him, you'll love him. And verse 21, sure enough, does seem to suggest that it's all down to ignorance. Have a look. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Well, if only they knew In this case, if only they knew the Father, they wouldn't hate Jesus. They wouldn't hate us. Well, I want to suggest to you, it's not about ignorance. At least it's not innocent ignorance. As though if the world could just get to know Jesus and find out about him, they'd all love him. Now look at verse 22. Jesus has spoken to them. See that? They've heard makes them guilty. There's no excuse. Verse 24, they've seen Jesus' miracles, and still they hate him. If this is ignorance, it's willful ignorance. It's literally ignoring, choosing not to know Jesus. It's not not in the mind, at least it's not first and foremost in the mind, it's in the heart. And you can see it's fulfilling the very law of God that the Jews of Jesus' day supposedly took so seriously. That's 2,000 years ago. What about today in our world? Well, no surprise, nothing's changed. This is human nature. People don't necessarily love Jesus more the more they find out about him. And that's because, Jesus says, they belong to the world. They love the world. I've been a pastor and a missionary for more than 10 years. 
in Japan and in Oxford. And lots of my work's been evangelism with unbelievers, people who are not Christians. And I know from hard experience that finding out more about Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that everyone believes in him, becomes his friend. In many cases, quite the opposite. The more they hear, the more they don't like it, the more they push away. They reject the message. Sometimes they reject the messenger. Sometimes they get abusive, turning against those who are just trying to love them and and share a message of hope with them. You don't need to be a missionary to know that. If you're a Christian, I guess you've probably got your own experiences when you've tried to show and tell Jesus. And everybody's not clapping. Well, Jesus warns the disciples just how bad things will get for them. Have a look at chapter 16 and verse 2. They'll put you out of the synagogues, out the church, church of their day. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. These words make us think perhaps of the Apostle Paul hounding and persecuting Christians to death out of his misplaced zeal for the glory of God. We can thank God that we don't face death in this country for our faith in Jesus, although, of course, around our world, many of our brothers and sisters do, and we cannot take our political freedoms for granted. But have we not suffered our own persecutions? Smaller, perhaps, but nevertheless hard to bear. They will put you out of the synagogues. You know, I cannot walk through the gates of New College in the University of Edinburgh each morning to my office, past the assembly hall of the Church of Scotland, and and fail to see engraved in the stone above the door the solemn words of Psalm 107, praise him in the assembly of the elders. And fail to think of the great shame it is that many true believers in Jesus who love him, his friends, have no place, have no home in that place. The world will hate you. Now, of course, it is not true that all non-Christians hate all Christians all the time. If that's your experience, the problem's probably with you. It's not my experience. But it is true that when we hate, well, sorry, when we share Christ, when we bear witness to him, we should expect opposition and even hatred. Perhaps some of you have suffered real persecution or discrimination in your workplace on account of your faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you have lost friends or even been disowned by your family because you've stood up for Jesus. I've seen that in Japan particularly. Families saying, We don't want to speak to you again. And haven't we all, if we're friends of Jesus, suffered the hurtful jibe, the scornful look, just the cold shoulder that we receive when we try and make Jesus known in the world? I was at a school reunion recently. It's just 20 years. And I got into conversation with an old school friend who knew I'd become a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at school. And after a couple of pints, he started to berate me in words I can't use in a sermon on a Sunday night about how stupid I was to believe all this nonsense and this religious mumbo-jumbo in an age of science. And not just to believe it for me, 
but to waste my life going off to some far-off country and other people's lives and money and resources to get me there, to spread it around. That was hard, hard to hear. But Jesus says to his friends, the world will hate you. Don't be surprised. Chapter 16, verse 4. I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. And Jesus wants us to be prepared. So we mustn't take the world's hatred as a sign of the absence of Jesus. No, Jesus is with us by his Spirit. We mustn't take the world's hatred as a sign of the Father's displeasure. No, Jesus was hated. Jesus was crucified. And he's the one of whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son with him I'm well pleased. And we mustn't take the hatred of the world as a sign of the failure of the gospel message. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And we're going to see that in a minute. But we must expect that the world will hate us. That is the realism that Jesus shares with us. But secondly, and this time wonderfully, the reassurance. And the second point is bigger and better than the first. So if you're only going to remember one, remember this second point. When we bear witness to Jesus, the Spirit will help us. Well, we've already seen in the farewell discourse the great privilege given to believers in Jesus of the gift of the Holy Spirit. By him, God himself comes to dwell with us. And three weeks ago, Rog actually had us look already at some of these verses in chapter 16, especially verse 7 there, where Jesus says that it's to the disciples' advantage that he, that Jesus, goes away from them in the flesh so that he can come to them spiritually by his Spirit. So today we're, we're going to focus on the point that the Spirit helps us with our witness to Jesus because he is the witness to Jesus. He himself's the one who does that witnessing, and his witness is powerful. Now, the Spirit is called the helper by Jesus. He's the advocate, which is what the word can also mean. When I think of advocates, I think of those guys up at the court of session on the high street in their gowns and their wigs. I used to work there in the summer holidays when I was a university student. In fact, my mum and dad met at the court of session, not the family court, the court of session. And perhaps there's something wrong about thinking about advocates. If you're English, by the way, you call them barristers, advocates. It's the same thing. But actually, there's probably a link here. At least there's something that can help us because the Greek word for a, a helper or an advocate is a legal word. And it, it, part of an advocate's job is to speak for his client or her client and to plead the case on the client's part. The advocate helps you by taking your part, by speaking for you, by representing you, by bearing witness, and just so the Holy Spirit, the Helper, capital H, verse 26, bears witness about Jesus. His witness is powerful, and when he works in and through believers, he's the reason that in spite of all that we've heard already tonight about the world's hatred, not everyone who hears about Jesus hates Jesus. Now, some are converted, become his friends. Well, look with me at chapter 15, verse 20. This is how we know that Jesus is teaching this, 15, 20. 
He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If you're keeping track of your biblical conditions, Jesus is speaking first-class conditions again. That means he assumes it's true. He assumes that the disciples are going to meet these two groups of people. On the one hand, he presumes or assumes that the apostles will meet these people who are going to persecute Jesus and then persecute the apostles too. There will be those who hate. But others will keep Jesus' word and keep the apostolic word as well. It's the same word. It's the gospel. And these are believers. Well, we know that the apostles experienced this in the book of Acts. If you read through that book, the history of the early church, you'll know that yes, they were scattered, and yes, they were persecuted, and yes, some of them were killed. But wonderfully, many, many were converted as the gospel message were preached. The church grew and grew and grew, and the book of Acts says again and again, the Spirit of God was at work doing it. And wonderfully, that hasn't stopped. And today as well, we experience as Christians that when we show and tell Jesus, some believe, and they love Jesus, and their lives are transformed. I wonder if you've experienced that close hand. If you're a Christian, you've experienced it very close hand because it's happened to you. Maybe you've experienced that as you've been used to lead someone else to Jesus. If that's so, that's the Spirit's work. You know, we work too. We witness, but the Spirit's the senior partner in all our witnessing. So, what exactly does Jesus tell us about what the Spirit does? It's important for us to understand that so we can recognize His work and give Him thanks when we see it. And it's all there in verses 8 to 15 of chapter 16. We've touched already on verses 12 to 15 in earlier sermons. So I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, I'm just going to focus this evening on verses 8 to 11. This is where we'll finish. It's just one sentence. Uh, Let me read it. Chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes, that's the helper, the spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's just one sentence, but it's quite complicated and dense, isn't it? So we'll just unpack it a little bit. It's speaking about the convicting work of the Spirit. That's the central idea, his work of convicting. And in this work, the Spirit's still acting in a legal capacity. But this time, he's not the defendant. He's not acting in favor of the defendant. Here, the meaning is that the Spirit will act as prosecutor and convict, but not always so that the guilty verdict is passed, or at least it will be passed, but for many, that will lead them to faith in Jesus and salvation. Let's see what it means. First of all, the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. Not believing in Jesus is the greatest sin of all. I wonder if that's news to anyone here this evening. Perhaps we could say it's at the root of all sin. Believing in Jesus is the one work that the Father requires of us, Jesus says in John 6. We can only come to God the Father through Jesus the Son. He's the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, and yet the world doesn't believe. And that is sin. 
in its essence. The dictionary will tell you that sin is all about certain things, actions that you need to avoid. Sensuous advertising will tell you that sin is all about giving in to your desires for sex and chocolate. Jesus tells you sin is all about not believing in him. Maybe you think of yourself as a good person, but you haven't become a friend of Jesus. You wouldn't recognize that description of yourself. Perhaps you say you believe in God. Well, the Spirit's work is to convict you that you're sinning against God by rejecting his son, Jesus. Have you ever recognized that sin in your life? If you're a Christian, you have. And that's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Second, the Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. It says, because Jesus goes to the Father and the disciples will see him no longer. What's all that about? Well, in context, when Jesus talks about going to the Father and you'll see me no longer, he's talking about that great sequence of events that's going to begin the next day when he is crucified for the sins of the world. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead. And then 40 days after that, he ascends to the highest place and sits at the right hand of God, the Father. And what the Spirit does is to convince people that it's by means of those events, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that God is able to give a righteousness, a right standing with himself, a right relationship with himself, by grace, the free gift of God, through faith in Jesus, to anyone who believes. Jesus died in the place of sinners, and he offers them that righteousness as a free gift. It's the most wonderful thing. Have you received it? The work of the Spirit crushes human pride. If the world wants anything to do with God, it wants a God it can control, manipulate, impress, and then work to its own advantage. In Japan, there are eight million gods, and each one of them serves a different purpose just like that. But if we've realized that we haven't got any righteousness of our own, that we stand before a holy God, as it were, in filthy rags, Unable, really, to stand. If we realize that it's only by faith in Jesus and his death and his resurrection that we can be righteous in God's sight, that is the work, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. If you've realized that, isn't that something to be thankful for? And third and finally, the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. As it says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the ruler of this world is, is the devil, and his judgment is his defeat by the cross of Jesus. He thought it was a victory. The Bible proclaims it as his defeat. As the ruler of the world, the devil holds out a gospel of his own. It's a message. Trust in me, and I'll give you freedom and fulfillment. And the world happily follows. But the devil's gospel is no gospel at all. It doesn't give freedom and fulfillment. It ends in lostness and loneliness. And those who follow it, and many of us were in that position, lost, without God, without hope in the world. In the world, yeah, loving the world, yeah, being loved by the world, great, but to what end? Slaves to the ruler of this world, 
heading, Jesus will tell us, lovingly heading for destruction under the judgment and condemnation of God. It's to this lost world that the Spirit proclaims to each one who's in slavery to the devil, slavery to sin, that if you turn to Jesus Christ, the devil can't hold you any longer. Sin can't hold you any longer. True freedom, true fulfillment are found in him because the devil and his works have been defeated by Jesus. If you've come to know that, if you've come to experience that true freedom in Christ, that is the work of God's Holy Spirit. So I hope you can see that in this work of the Spirit, the Helper, there's both a negative and a positive aspect. He breaks down, but then he builds up. He cuts to the heart. He shows us sinners what we're really like, our great need, so that we get down on our knees and we say, how then can I be saved? But he also applies balm to those wounds by pointing us to the Savior, to Jesus. That's the double force of that word, convict. It's the key thought. It's what the Spirit does. He convicts. Now, the original word is elencho, which gives us, you've got to be Scottish to say that, or maybe German. It gives us the English word, elenctics. You all know that word? My wife always tells me, don't use big words in sermons, but this is such a good one that I had to share it with you. Here's what Wikipedia says about elenctics. Listen up. According to Wikipedia, elenctics in Christianity is a division of theology concerned with persuading people of the truth of the gospel in order to produce in them an awareness of and a sense of guilt for their sins and a recognition of their need for God's forgiveness for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I can't say it better than Wikipedia. That is elenctics. That's the word convict. That's what the Spirit does. And maybe you didn't know it before tonight, but if you're a Christian, well, you are an elenctician. Even if you can't wire a plug, you are an elenctician. Because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we're going to do in Passion for Life at the end of next month. It's what we do at Christianity Explored. It's what we do on Tuesdays after the English class with folks from overseas. It's what we do in all our different small group contexts. We're preaching the gospel to one another. What John 16 verses 8 to 11 is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the supreme elinctician. He's the convictor in chief. He's our helper. He indwells us. He gives us words to say. And he's not just at work in our hearts as Christians. He's at work ahead of us, before us, in the hearts of those who are listening and who are watching. So that our evangelism in the world, our, our witness to Jesus, isn't in vain. And that's the encouragement. Those whom God is calling, he will most certainly, by the power of his Spirit, draw to himself. He will most certainly ensure that they respond with repentance and faith. Well, I hope that's an encouragement to you. Jesus tells us in his farewell discourse, when you bear witness to me, and we must, for Christians, you must expect that the world will hate you. But you must also expect, you must expect that the Spirit will help you. There's realism, but there's reassurance. So we're building up to our Passion for Life weekend, just a few weeks off. We're going to be showing and telling Jesus. That's what it's all about. What must we expect? Well, the world will hate us, but the Spirit will help us. So let's pray on 
Let's in faith invite our friends. Let's show and tell Jesus. In just a few short months, I shouldn't say it like that, but it won't be long until we plant a church, Lord willing, in the Collinson area of Edinburgh. The whole point of planting a church is to show and tell Jesus to the people who live in that area. What should we expect? Well, folks, the world will hate us, but the Spirit will help us. So let's persevere. Let's pray. Let's show and tell Jesus. When I said let's pray, that was an encouragement to pray. That wasn't saying let's pray now. You got one more application. But good, shows you're listening. Some of you are going to work tomorrow morning. And when you get there, there's going to be temptation. Temptation to compromise. Temptation to just tune down the Jesus part and the graphic equalizer. But you thought tonight, the Spirit's convicted you. You're going to show and tell Jesus. What should you expect? Well, the world will hate you. But the Spirit will help you. So you should persevere. Why? Because you are from God and you've overcome them. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So says the Apostle John. Because if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So says the Apostle Peter. See the link in that last verse? Who's the most spiritual person in this room tonight? Who's the most spirit-filled? Is it the one who works miracles? The one who talks most eloquently? The one who has the amazing experiences? No, listen again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rests upon you, dwells within you and enables you to bear fruit that will last because you're united to the Lord Jesus himself. He knows you. He's with you. The world will hate you, but the Spirit will help you. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus has promised that although he's gone away from us in body, he will, by his Spirit, never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the calling to bear witness to him. We feel inadequate, but thank you that the Holy Spirit fills us. Thank you for his work and his power to convict the world, so that while many will be condemned by his conviction, many others will be saved. We praise you that in your great grace and mercy, you've counted many of us tonight among that number of the saved. Jesus has called us his friends. So help us, as you've promised, to show and to tell Jesus to the world for your glory.